James 5 for our study this morning. Let me invite you back tonight. Um, tonight will be like Christian Disneyland. Uh, we will sing Christmas songs. Uh, we'll look at Philippians chapter 2, which is, will we sing Christmas songs, Alex? Yes, okay. Uh, I had some, the pastor's band will be leading music tonight, which for reasons I'm not fully aware of, I'm not allowed to be part of. Um, uh, but we'll be singing Christmas songs. We'll be looking at Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 8, that section there. Well, though being in the form of God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, a slave, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I think that's, I mean, that's the best Christmas passage. Uh, definitively, I declare it right now. That's the best Christmas passage. We'll be looking at that tonight. Uh, we'll be celebrating communion. That passage connects from Bethlehem straight to the cross. So we'll be celebrating communion together. We'll hear from one of our missionaries who's serving in a uh, closed country in a persecuted part of the world. We'll be hearing from him. Uh, so it'll be a wonderful time. I hope you come back 5.15 tonight. And this morning, James 5, verses 7 through 10. Let me read them for us now. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. When I was a middle school student, coming home from soccer practice, I'd take the bus home and I knew that I had about an hour between when I arrived and one of my, my parents arrived, my dad or my stepmom, varied which one got home first, but I knew I had about an hour there. I also knew what was required of me in that hour, that when one of them walked the door, what should have been accomplished at this point is that the table should be set for dinner, the kitchen should be cleaned from from breakfast that morning and from whatever snacks I've managed to destroy uh, in that hour. The laundry, specifically my soccer stuff, should be started in the washing machine. The pets should be fed. This is not a farm. This is like, you know, we had a dog and a cat. Should be fed. And my homework, if not completed, they should walk in the door and see the table and hear the washing machine and see the clean kitchen and see me working on my homework. That's what it should look like when they come home. My normal routine was to come home, drop my backpack in the center of the door. Why not? Then go make a huge mess in the kitchen and then go play video games until I heard the car outside. <laughs> At which point it was full on panic mode. Uh, my dad drove a motorcycle. I had a little bit more of a warning on that one. I could hear that a little bit further down the street. Those extra 10 seconds were important to me. And, uh, you know, I could start the washing machine with a foot and do dishes with one arm and, you know, try to throw the dog outside. And I forgot to turn the video game off and run over there and what a mess. Um, I know a wise person would say, why don't you do what you're supposed to do first and then play video games? But have you met a middle school student before? I mean, <laughs> you know, I dump the backpack out so it looks like I've been doing my homework and, the question James wants to ask you is this, how would you live your life differently if you knew when Jesus was going to come back? 
If you knew when he would return, what would you do differently? Are you, to borrow the illustration, squandering your time playing video games or squandering your time on the things of this world? Or are you living with a kind of eagerness, uh, an expectation? Are you, are you living your life ready for him to return? His will isn't hidden from us. He's revealed to us what he wants us to be doing. It's not like it's a mystery. He knows and has spoken to us clearly through his word about how he wants us to conduct our lives while we're waiting for his return. So the question is pretty simple. Are you doing it or not? Now the Bible does teach clearly that Jesus is coming back to earth. He was crucified, resurrected on the third day, spent time teaching his disciples about the truth of the kingdom and then ascended up into glory. His disciples were gathered around where he ascended. They saw him go into the clouds, go into the sky and the angels spoke to them and said, men of Galilee, what are you doing here? Don't you know in the same way he ascended, he'll return. This is Acts 1 verse 11. In the same way he left, he will return. And by that we know that he ascended physically, he'll return physically. He ascended visibly, he'll return visibly. He ascended into the sky, he'll return in the sky. It's been revealed to us. In fact, in Acts chapter 3, Peter describes the promise of his coming as the fulfillment of all things, everything that was promised through the prophets that were not fulfilled. I mean, you know this, many of the Old Testament prophecies about Christ were not fulfilled at the first coming of Christ. But Peter says they will all be fulfilled when he comes again. There are probably a hundred verses in the New Testament that promise his second coming or describe his second coming. I mean, one of my favorites is a, a preacher, 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, by his appearing and by his kingdom, preach the word. But notice the connection there. He says, as sure as God exists, as sure as Jesus Christ exists, as sure as the fact he will judge you, he'll judge the living and he will judge the dead, as sure as those things are, he is coming back. And by his first appearance and by his appearing, his second one, he's coming back. Perhaps the most clear of the hundred or so verses in the New Testament, I, I won't read all of them to you, but perhaps the most clear about the second coming is Hebrews 9, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the promise of the book of Hebrews. There are those that reject the coming of Christ but say, hey, we're still waiting for a Savior. And, and Paul says there's not going to be a second Savior coming. And in fact, when Jesus returns the second time, he's not going to come to make atonement for sin anymore. He's already done that. So if you reject the first offering of Christ, if you reject the, the gospel message, there's no second offering that will come. There's no second Savior. Nevertheless, Paul says, he will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to gather those, the phrase, who are eagerly waiting for him. So that's the question James brings before you this morning. Are you eagerly waiting for our Savior to return a second time? You don't know when that will be. You don't know when he'll come back. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 4 verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. <laughs> so it's close by. Theologians call this the doctrine of eminence, that Jesus could come back at, at any time. In any generation, he could return. There's, there's no 
It's, it's the next step in, the, in God's redemptive plan. There's no intermediate age between the church and his second coming. You know, the church has not always been on earth. The church began at Pentecost and will end at the, the rapture of the church when we meet the Lord in the air. This is that window right here where the church exists on earth. There's not a new phase. There's not a new gap. There's not a stage between now and his return to earth. That's the next thing that happens. He comes back. That's the doctrine of eminence. It's at hand, Peter says. Or Paul says the day of the Lord is near. That's Hebrews 10.25. Encourage one another as long as it's called today and all the more as the day draws near. Peter says it's at hand. Paul says it's drawing close to you. It's drawing near. Well, they wrote that 2,000 years ago. Has it, has it always been at hand? Is it still drawing near? And the answer is yes. For the whole church age is drawing near. How near? I don't know. I don't know when he will return. He just says that he will. He says it's the next thing in the prophetic calendar that will happen. It's near. It's at hand. It's drawing near. It keeps getting closer. How can it keep getting closer if it's been 2,000 years? Well, I'll tell you this. It's closer today than it was yesterday. I feel like the dad talking to kids in the backseat of the car. Are we there yet? No, but we're closer. We're closer. It's closer. And there are no more prophets to warn us. This is a telltale sign of a false prophet who says they know when the Lord's going to come back. No, they don't. The word has told us, the word has given us this intentional ambiguity. It's very clear that he's coming back. It's ambiguous as to when, except that it's next. And so you're waiting. Why is it intentionally ambiguous? Why doesn't it say? Why doesn't the Bible say it will happen on this calendar day? It'll happen 2,000 years or 2,019 years or whatever since his, his ascension. Well, <laughs> the whole illustration about me as a kid playing video games. <laughs> That's why. It sanctifies us to not know the moment he returns. It sanctifies us to have this longing, this expectancy. And the word gives us that. It says it draws near. It's at hand. So what are we supposed to do? I said that the Bible is clear about what we're supposed to do. So what exactly is it? Well, that's what I want to give us as an outline this morning. Three responses to the eminent return of our Savior. Three responses to the eminent return of our Savior. And before we get into that, a quick question people often ask is in the gospel, specifically Luke, for example, Luke 10, I think verse 9, Jesus says the kingdom is at hand to the, to the Jews. The kingdom is at hand. They rejected him. They crucified him. Now there's this whole church age. So how can Jesus say the kingdom is at hand when the church has to come before the kingdom? And I think the answer to that is that when Jesus says to the, the Jews in Luke 10, is just one example, in other places also, the kingdom is at hand or the kingdom is among you, it is a sincere offer to Israel of the kingdom. Had they received the Savior, had they responded, had they acknowledged him as the fulfillment of prophecy, God could have inaugurated his kingdom right there. He could have ushered it in on earth from Jerusalem then. But the truth is the Jews rejected him. He was betrayed, ultimately murdered, at his death, there was just a handful of his followers. Even at his ascension, there was just 100 plus people. He was rejected by them. This is what John means in John 1 verse 11. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. But to all those who did receive him, he gave them the right to be called children of God. Children not born of the, the flesh or a, a human will or an act of the will or a human decision, but instead by the will of God. And those are united to Christ in faith. This is the church that he has taken those promises originally given to, to unbelieving Israel. 
He's broken off unbelieving Israel. He's grafted the, the church in, the Gentiles into the promises of Israel. We become descendants of Abraham through faith in that sense. But we are not Old Testament Israel. And in the future, God will restore all things to Israel. He will complete all of his promises to them. Everything he's ever promised to unbelieving Israel will be fulfilled to Israel in the future. This is described in Zechariah 10, 11, and 12. In those days, Israel will repent and they will all be saved. This is what Paul means in Romans 11 when he says in those days, all Israel will be saved and God will fulfill his plans to them. So the kingdom was offered to Israel. It was at hand. They rejected it. And now it is still at hand because he can come any moment. This is all under the sovereignty of God. God knew that Jesus would be rejected. This is why Jesus himself prophesies about the church. He says in Matthew 16 that he will build his church. Matthew 18, he describes how the church will function. So he's giving these future promises about building the church on earth. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. The church did not exist in the life of Christ. It started at Pentecost. He will build it, Jesus says, and he's doing it now. So in the same way he could tell the Jews in his life the kingdom was at hand had they received him, he tells us now who have received him the kingdom is at hand. I think of an analogy for this. Leaving uh, Terminal C at Reagan Airport and you know you're going to take off going to the north. The plane has to drive along. It feels like you're driving to Richmond which is where the runway starts and you're driving all the way across the airport. But even as you're starting that long taxi down to the end of the runway there, the, the pilot might say over the intercom, we're number one, we're cleared for takeoff, we're number one for departure. And then you drive for five minutes. <laughs> and then you take off. You can't see out the front of the plane. You don't know how long it will be until you take off. You just know you're next. <laughs> you just know takeoff is at hand. When you get to the front of the runway, you don't have to wait. And sometimes after hearing that, the plane does stop and does wait as the pilots do other things. But you don't know about that. It's behind the door. It's a great mystery what happens up there. (laughs) And next thing you know, (laughs) you're taking off. That's the, the, the command has gone over the intercom to you. Next in line for departure. You're next. (laughs) It's the opposite. Don't buckle up. Unbuckle. (laughs) Because Jesus could come get you at any moment. That's the idea. But you don't know when. Maybe there's still a long drive ahead. You don't know. You can't see out the front of the plane. So how are you supposed to live, having been cleared for takeoff, how are you supposed to live until that happens? And that's what James is talking about here. First, we patiently wait. We patiently wait. Be patient, therefore, brothers, verse 7, until the coming of the Lord. The first command given to us as we wait for the coming of the Lord is to be patient, to patiently wait. Now, there's two Greek words for patience. English kind of has one, but there's two different ones in, in Greek, and it's kind of fun to know the difference. One is being patient with difficult circumstances, and that's the one that's used in James 1, that there's suffering around you, you're going through difficult trials, so patiently bear those, endure it, it's sometimes translated. That's not the word that's used here. Here, the word is the Greek word for be patient with difficult people. <laughs> Be patient. You're surrounded by difficult people. Bear them patiently. The immediate context here is is the rich that are persecuting the church or the rich that are are bringing difficulty upon. In chapter 2, they're dragging Christians into court. James 5, 1 through 6 begins as a rebuke against the, the rich. And again, the church is suffering because of them. And now here in verse 7, he says he's flipping, going from rebuking the rich to encouraging those who are persecuted by them, saying, hey, be patient with them. 
And this is the hallmark of Christianity, that you patiently endure persecution. Because of your love for Christ, you endure it. You turn the other cheek. You don't retaliate. And so much of Christianity is countercultural to the American culture, and this would be a great example of that. You know, in our, in our culture, somebody persecutes you or somebody crosses you and you want revenge. You want a social media mob or you want, you know, their boss to know. Or you, I mean, that's kind of how our culture is engineered. Somebody offends you or wrongs you, you don't get mad, get even, they say. And that's so opposed to Christianity. Christianity is somebody wrongs you or somebody persecutes you, you turn the other cheek. You turn the other cheek, you bear with them patiently patiently now why would you bear with a persecutor patiently because two reasons one you really do believe in hell and you don't want anybody to go there and so you're patient towards that person because God was patient towards you you lived much of your life in sin and opposed to God and God didn't get even with you when you sinned God was patient towards you as Peter says not willing that any of you should perish but that all should come to eternal life God didn't God didn't return to the earth he didn't do his second coming before you were a Christian he waited and so you can wait for other people to also come to faith you can be patient on them you, you don't know if they're going to come to faith but they're not going to come to faith by you getting even with them <laughs> they're not going to see oh wow Christians can really organize a political mob I better be on their side but church history is filled with stories of people coming to faith because they persecuted believers and believers dealt with them patiently. I mean, one example that comes immediately to mind is Saul, the Apostle Paul, <laughs> was a persecutor of believers. And yet he came to faith. So you're patient towards those who persecute you. Because God was patient towards you and because you want them to come to faith. You really do believe the second coming is going to happen. Now, this word that James uses here in verse 7, until the coming of the Lord, it's, uh, the Greek word here is parousia, and I don't often give you Greek words, but this is one that I think it's important because of how often it's used in the New Testament. It's a very interesting word, parousia. It doesn't literally mean coming. Literally, it means presence. To be in somebody's parousia is to be in their presence. To be next to them is to be in their parousia. What's interesting with Jesus is that he has ascended. He's, no, he's not physically on earth. You know, God's omnipresent and the fact that the Father is omniscience, he know, you can't hide from him. He knows all things on the earth. The Holy Spirit seals your heart so God dwells with us through his Holy Spirit. But Jesus has physically ascended into heaven. He's not physically on earth. So you can't be in his presence. You can bring his prayers before his presence because your prayers before his presence because the Holy Spirit is your intercessor as he intercedes before the, as the son intercedes before the father, but you're waiting to be in his presence. You know that he will return from heaven to gather you with him. And so when you're in the presence of the Lord, it's because he's gathered you next to him. That's what we're waiting for. We want to be in his presence, but we're not in his presence now, so we're waiting to be there. This is why John says, perfect love drives out fear. If you're a believer, you're marked by a love for Christ who's not here in this, this world, so you're longing for him to come so that you can be with him. I mean, in some sense, it's just that simple. You love Jesus, you want to be with him. He's not here, so you're waiting for him. This is why John says, perfect love drives out fear. As you wait for the second coming, it sanctifies you because you're longing for him. It purifies you. You don't fear the second coming. You eagerly wait for it. You're patient towards others. 
because you want Jesus to come for you. I think the best, word, the best verse to describe the parousia, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 1, at the coming of the Lord, at the parousia of the Lord, Paul says, we will be gathered to him. That's where this presence becomes our experience. The dead in Christ won't miss it. They will rise from the grave and they'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Those who are alive when he comes, we will be caught up to meet the Lord with the air. We'll be united with those who have already died in Christ and we'll be in the parousia, the presence of the Lord forever. We're not in the parousia right now. It is an event. It's, it's an appearance. It's a coming, but it's an event. You think of a, a dignitary or a president arriving somewhere and the, the trumpets blast and the, the, the doors swing open and they walk in. Ladies and gentlemen, the president, and he walks in. It's his presence, but it's also an event that's the second coming of the Lord we'll be in his presence but it is an event that happens and that's why it's often just translated the coming of the Lord he uses the article the coming he will come there will be an event and we'll be with him now when the Bible describes the parousia it, it describes it as an event that happens quickly Matthew 24 Jesus says it happens like lightning flashes in the sky he's not here and then suddenly he's here or in Matthew 24 also, it'll be like in the days of Noah. There's not a flood and then there's a flood. <laughs> Boom. That's what's going to People will be swept away. They're minding their own business and they're swept away. So it will be at the second coming, the perusia of Christ. People will be on earth and then they will be swept away in God's judgment. We'll be united with him in the air. It will happen immediately. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, in the twinkle of an eye, a blast of a trumpet and we'll be with him. The idea is that we're minding our own business one moment and then we're with the Lord the next. And so James says, be patient. Be patient as you're experiencing persecution until the Lord comes. It's almost like this idea you can all, you're getting ready for the impact. I know I'm using plain illustrations here, but it's like you hear the, the word brace, brace over the intercom and you just haven't quite hit yet. <laughs> That's what it is. We know he's coming back. We're braced for impact. We just haven't felt it yet, but he will come. We patiently wait. So first, we patiently wait. Second, we persistently work. We persistently work. And this is the analogy James uses here. Second part of verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. In Israel, the rains come uh, when you first plant early spring and then you, the farmer would wait for the plant and the, the early rains cause the crops to sprout. The farmer tends to his, his crop, tends to his fields throughout the summer into fall and there's the late rains that come in the fall. The farmer can't harvest until the late rains come. If they come too late, the, the yield declines. If they come too early, the, the crops aren't mature. They got to come at the right time and after they come, they, they bring out the sweetness of the fruit, for example, and the full harvest there is there and so the farmer has to wait for it. Now, there's nothing the farmer can do to speed up the rains. This is a world that doesn't have cloud seeding. Okay, back when James wrote this, there's no climate change. It's not like if James would have recycled, the, the rains would have come earlier or later or whatever. There's nothing he can do. There's nothing he can do to speed it up. But that doesn't mean the farmer is lazy. After the farmer plants the crops, he doesn't go inside and play video games. What does the farmer do? He works. Now, does the farmer's work cause the rains to hurry up and come? No. But does the farmer's work cause an increase in the harvest? Yes. And that's the example James uses here. You be patient like the farmer is patient. 
He's not patient just kicking, kicking back watching TV. He's patient while he's working. And this gets to the second imperative in verse 8. You also be patient. And here's this imperative. Establish your hearts. Be resolved. This phrase, establish your hearts, it's an idiom in, in, in Greek. It means literally set your face. We don't use that idiom in English, but it is used that way. Interestingly, it is translated that way one time in the New Testament in Luke's gospel. It says Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. It means he established his heart to go there. He decided he was going to go to Jerusalem and no amount of Thomas saying, oh, we're going to go get killed is going to dissuade him. No amount of persecution, no amount of opposition. He's going to Jerusalem. He set his face there. He established his heart towards Jerusalem. That's this phrase here. In James, what are you supposed to do? Well, you're patiently waiting like a farmer. You're supposed to be resolved. You're supposed to be committed. It's an active word. Established has a weird passive connotation in English. Like you see this restaurant was established 25 years ago or something like that. Like something just happened. But in Greek, this is an active word. You are going to battle against the world. You're establishing your heart. You're setting your face. You're building. It's, it has a digging trenches kind of uh, connotation to it in Greek. You're digging the trenches there. You're setting up for the second coming. You're working while you wait. I think the closest English word to this idiom is just resolved. You're resolved to be ready for the second coming. You know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to work. The, the, the harvest is, the fields are white with harvest. The workers are the ones that are few. And you, so you work while you're waiting for the second coming. Romans 13, verse 12. The night is almost over. The day is at hand, speaking of the day of the Lord, the second coming. So let us cast off the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. I mean, be busy at this world while you're waiting. Don't let the time tick by. Galatians 6, 9. Don't grow weary in doing good, for in due time you'll receive a harvest. Even there, Paul's using the harvest analogy. Don't grow tired of being faithful for the Lord because, just because he's not here yet. Keep working for the Lord. Because at the right time you'll receive a harvest. Look at James 3 uh, verse 18. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Even James uses this harvest analogy. And here it's connected to the farmer. The harvest of righteousness will be experienced by those that are sowing peace. Are you busy sowing peace or are you distracted by the things of the world? We're so easily distracted when we think of the second coming. You know, somebody told me this week they think this is the most neglected doctrine in the American church. The idea that Jesus is coming back. Because people are, they're materialistic. We have, for the most part, we have a pretty cush life. The kind of persecution or the kind of difficulty we deal with is so small compared to what it is in much of the world. We're a very wealthy neighborhood, a very wealthy community here in Northern Virginia. You know, so our idea of financially being stretched is so, um, I mean, comical to much of the world. And so we're distracted by things. You know, we, we like our life. We get, we get distracted by good things. You know, we get distracted by our work. We get distracted by our families. We're not eager for the second coming because things are going well at work and things are going well at home and we just like time with our kids or with our grandkids or with our parents or our grandparents and we're just enjoying life and so we're not eagerly waiting for the second coming. I remember back in college ministry, I used to hear college students say, ah, I want the Lord to come back, but I want to get married first. <laughs> And sometimes people don't grow out of that. You know, I want the Lord to go back, but I, I want the Lord to come back, but I, wanna, I want Christmas first. I mean, there's going to be some fun things that are going to happen this Christmas. 
I want the Lord to come back, but can he come back after the vacation I've planned for next summer? Because it's going to be a cool vacation. There's been a lot of research that's gone into it, and we've got the coolest places. So Jesus, come back, but not until September, please. We think like that. And you know what the cure for that is? It's persecution, really. When you experience persecution, you long for the second coming to come fast. And so if you find yourself distracted by the things of the world, (laughs) experience persecution. You think, but how? Well, evangelize. If you think, I don't experience persecution, are you sharing the gospel with people? I've had people tell me, I don't, I just, I don't experience persecution in this world. I say, well, share the gospel with people? No, I can't because I'd get in trouble at work. Think about those two sentences back to back for a while and and you'll see the problem there. (laughs) I tried to make a a firewood holder in my backyard. Um, I had some extra wood left over from uh, some steps that I put in and so I thought I'd dig a couple holes in my backyard and put down some wood to stack my firewood on top of and put these two posts on both sides. If you've seen my backyard, you know how funny this looks right now. Uh, so I put the post in there, and I'm, I'm pretty happy with this. I had dug a hole uh, like a couple feet underground. I mean, this hole was huge. By my standards, this hole was huge. Um, Geneva could get lost in this hole. And I sunk the post in there and then filled it up and stacked the firewood up. And it took about three days, and those posts started going. <laughs> and so now my fire, firewood pile is like, you know, 20 yards wide and two stacks deep. <laughs> and it's on top of those posts now. That's what happens in this world. You think your heart is established. You think you're sunk in deep enough. And just over time, you drift and drift and drift. This is James's command to you. Persistently work. Sink the posts in deep and persistently work while you wait for the Lord. So first, you patiently wait. Second, you persistently work. Third, you positively speak. We positively speak. This is where he says in verse 9, don't grumble against one another, brothers. Now, you might think, what does grumbling have to do with this? Well, you're waiting for the Lord to come back, so don't complain about other believers. Go back to the car ride analogy. Are we there yet? (laughs) No, not yet. We're close to where we were yesterday. So what happens in the back seat? Antagonism starts towards each other in the back seat. Look, grumbling against each other doesn't make you get there faster. It just makes it feel longer. A farmer, let's use this analogy, a farmer who complains about the weather, does it make the rain come any faster? No, but it makes it feel like it's taking longer, doesn't it? (laughs) Such it is with complaining. You complain about something, it doesn't fix what you're complaining about, it just makes it more exasperated in your mind. Now, there's verses that say why you shouldn't complain about those outside of the church or complain about life or complain in general, like Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling and complaining. All things. So there should be no part of your life that has grumbling and complaining in it at all. Here, James is particularly concerned with grumbling and complaining about other believers. Don't grumble and complain against one another. It's this Christian tendency to say, I don't know why that Christian is doing that that way, or I don't know why this church is doing that that way, or why this ministry is doing this ministry that way. Don't they know any better? How foolish are they? And you start to complain really against the Lord who's using those people. You say, I mean, if I was, if I was God, I wouldn't use that ministry. They're so, they do things so wrong. Okay, who are you complaining against when you're complaining like that? You say you're complaining about the other ministry or the other pastor or the other church or the other Christian. You're really complaining against the Lord. You know, or the, somebody tries to witness with you. 
knocks on your door to share the gospel with you and you complain like, oh, why are you doing that kind of evangelism? Maybe not out loud, but in your heart. Why are you doing that kind of evangelism? I wouldn't do that. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Who are you complaining about? You think you're complaining about that person? No, you're complaining about the Lord who's using that person. You're acting like, okay, let me give the farmer analogy again. A farmer who complains about the rain. Who's sovereign over the rain? So who's the farmer complaining about? God. Doesn't he know I need the rain? Now back to the Christian world. When you complain about other Christians, who's sovereign over those other Christians? Yeah. So who are you complaining about? God. Do you see why it's not very godly to complain about other Christians? <laughs> Even though you think you're so righteous because you, you happen to be right, right? You're always right when you complain. Matthew 7, Jesus says, don't you know the standard you use to judge others will be used against you? You complain about the other person for the way they do ministry or the way they share the gospel? Okay, apply that standard to yourself. You'll probably fail. Matthew 7, Jesus says, be more concerned about the log in your own eye before you go start, you know, speck removing from your brother's eye. James is just quoting his half-brother here, basically alluding to him at least, don't grumble against each other. When you complain about other believers, you're, you're a practical Arminian. You're practically saying that God is not in control of the world. I'm not happy with the way things are going. I'll complain about it. Paul says this way in Romans, don't you know that everybody will be judged by their own master? So for another believer, again, there's other verses about complaining about those in the world. That's not what James is talking about. Those in the church are those who are followers of Christ. If you're complaining about them, who is their master? Jesus. And so by complaining about another Christian, you're saying that I don't think Jesus is going to deal with his own slaves. Jesus has too many slaves. He can't control them all. So I'm going to complain about how he's using them. You know, you're a slave too. And Jesus will judge both of you. He'll judge you and the one you're complaining about. Better to just not complain about people. Think of the Old Testament. This is a besetting sin of the Israelites. The Israelites had two sins they loved. Idolatry or complaining about the real God. And they, they, they moved back and forth freely between those two extremes. Either worshiping a cow or complaining about Yahweh. That's how they rolled. But think about their complaints about God. Just in Exodus, in Numbers, think about how they complain about God. Oh, there's too many Egyptians. Why aren't we in Egypt anymore? <laughs> There's no food out here. Why is all this manna out here? Oh, and all the quail too. There's no water out here. Gurgle, gurgle, gurgle. That's the Israelites. Constant complaining. And God judges them for it and says in 1 Corinthians 10, he judged them for it so that you and I would learn not to complain about God. You know, in a courtroom, the bailiff announces when the judge is going to come in. There's a very practical reason for that. Because the judge does not want to walk into the courtroom and hear the attorneys complaining about her. <laughs> the judge walks in and, can you believe this judge? She has no idea what she's doing. Rah, 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 rah. Hello. <laughs> and so you get the announcement. All rise. The honorable judge now enters the courtroom and <laughs> zip it. Have you ever been complaining about somebody maybe at work and then they walk into the room you know, how awful it is that you know our new manager joe is doing this he, joe doesn't know what he's doing blah blah blah, blah. oh hey joe <laughs> just talking about you james 5 verse 9 functions as the bailiff telling you all rise 
The judge is at the door. He will step in any moment. So don't complain about him. And also turn off the video games. <laughs> and also be at work. If you were to summarize all this, it would be work, wait, and don't grumble. Be busy while you're waiting for the Lord. Because you know he's coming back and you know he will reward those who are eagerly waiting for him. Lord, we're thankful that you have announced your coming clearly so that no one can claim ignorance. We're thankful for what you've given us. It's enough to motivate us for holiness. We're thankful for what you've withheld from us. It's enough to guard us from apathy. Lord, I pray that you would use us to go into the world and be bold witnesses for the gospel. You have came to the earth the first time in your perfect timing. In the fullness of time, Paul says in Galatians, you were born the right time in world history, the fulfillment of prophecy. And we know you'll return again at the perfect time. We celebrate that this Advent season. We look backwards to the birth of Christ. We look forward to his second coming. We know now we're in that gap between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel. We're waiting for the next week. We're waiting for you to enter. We're waiting for the judge to come into the courtroom. Lord, our hearts, guard our hearts. We don't want to be the complaining attorneys. <laughs> we want to be the hearts that are eager to see the judge because we know that you have no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We want to, be, we want to see the judge and be filled with love and joy and expectancy. We long to see him. We hear he's at the door, Lord. We look forward to seeing him face to face. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.